Our Father God, it's truly honoring for us to be in your presence this hour, to know the Word of God in our hands, which is living truth, and for it to be placed in our hearts to form us and to shape us into men and women of God. This is our desire. Certainly our flesh resists the work of your Spirit, but Father, we choose to yield to your Spirit and to do His will this day and each day. And I pray that our study this morning will help us in furthering that commitment to serve you. Lord, I ask for your blessing upon this class and upon every Sunday school class that is taking place at this hour, upon the service which is occurring in the other building. Lord, minister to each heart and to each need. And Father, I and we together will give you the praise for being with us now. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 36th chapter of Genesis, Right, we have page uh, 62. If anybody doesn't have a page 62, Norma has copies of them. I would like to begin reading at verse 10. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, ruled the son of Esau's wife, Basimuth. And the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. And Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath and Zerah, Shammah and Mizah. These were the sons of Esau's wife Basimuth. And these were the sons of, Eli of Esau's wife Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau Jerush and Jalem and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are chief Teman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Zenaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. And these are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, chief Nahath, chief Zerah, chief Shammah, chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimuth. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibamah, chief Jerush, chief Jalam, chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the chiefs of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Now, are you inspired? <laughs> Praise the Lord, huh? <laughs> well, I'm not going to read all this chapter, let me clue you. <laughs> but we're going to cover it. It's, it's very interesting that uh, as you read through this, you say, whoa, what's the purpose? And of course, the purpose is not primarily for us in the, at the end of the 20th century. It was primarily for the Israelites uh, at the time that they were going to enter the land of Canaan. But to us, it has meaning too. This passage, as you have noted, reiterates the names of Esau's sons, and then it lists his grandsons. And what's interesting is verse 12 in this passage is unique. Uh, you may not have noticed that as we went down through the list. But if you look at it carefully, you discover that 
the wife of Esau's son Eliphaz, who bore him six sons, remains unnamed. But his concubine, who bore him one son, is named. We think, now wait a minute, there's no fairness here. The gal who, who bore, bore him six sons, she, she's just a nobody as far as the record here. And here this other lady is, who's not even a full wife, and, and she's named. Well, there's a reason for that. And the reason is not so much who this woman was apart from her son. Her son was Amalek. And uh, if you remember some of the stories from the Old Testament, the name Amalek is rather significant. This son would ultimately become a great pain to the nation of Israel. And just to illustrate that, I've uh, recorded a couple of passages there uh, on your outline that we could look at briefly and quickly. In the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus, we have a, a very well-known account that you have read and, and heard sermons about, certainly, many times. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Have you ever tried holding your arms up for a long period of time? You know, it's like trying to put up uh, sheetrock on the roof or something. You know, if you try to do it without the proper equipment, it, your arms grow heavy very, very quickly. Uh, when it came about that Moses held his hands up, that Israel prevailed. His hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now the sermon usually that comes out of this is that we need to cooperate together. and We need to hold one another up in prayer and support one another and be alongside the pastor or whatever the emphasis might be. But look at the next three verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. The thrust of this account is the destruction of a people, a people who were related to Israel a people who came from the grandson of Esau. Look now at Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning at verse 17. The Lord speaking through Moses, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way. This is verse 18. How he met you along the way and attacked you attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun you must not forget. Why? Because he did not fear God. 
He was not afraid to, to attack the people of God, the chosen ones of God, who were coming into the land. And Amalek, like, like the jackal, was out on the periphery taking the weak ones and pulling them down. And so God determined destruction for this people. And because of the future importance of this people, now, if you remember the story of Joshua leading the people into the land, Moses through the wilderness, and then Joshua finally into the land, it was victory after victory, and, and no one really stood before Israel for a long time in that conquest. Amalek was the one nation that was the most traitorous of all. God said, go around Moab, go around Edom, because they are your brother. But so was Amalek in, in the same sense. But God ordered the destruction of Amalek. And I think that's why uh, Timnah is mentioned here and why Amalek is highlighted because of the future role that this people would play. <coughs> Verses 15 through 19 in the passage which we read is um, a list of the sons and grandsons of Esau who, become clan, who became clan chiefs. Seven of them were descended from Esau's son Eliphaz and four from his son Rule. So that comprised 11 grandsons who became clan chiefs. But you'll notice there are three clan chiefs who were not Esau's grandsons, but were his sons. And these were his sons by Oholibamah. Evidently, they were placed at the same level as his grandsons because Esau married Oholibamah much later in time. And therefore, the sons that she bore to him were as the same age, the same generation, as the grandsons of Esau by his two older sons. And so, the 14 which are named here as clan chiefs, 11 are his grandsons, 3 are his sons. For, I think, that particular reason, they were in the same age bracket. Now, if you have the King James Version in front of you here, as you read through this passage, you keep running across the name Duke. Duke this, Duke that, Duke somebody else, the title Duke. And of course, that's uh, appropriate when you consider the fact that King James Version was, was uh, formally published in 1611. And at that time in uh, the nation of, of England, the, the British Empire, there, the growing British Empire, there were lots of Dukes. And of course, there still are uh, people of such title today. But at the time that the book was translated, the term duke had some real meaning yet. I mean, a person with significant power uh, in, in the land. But uh, the Hebrew word which is translated here is the word eleph, which really basically means 1,000. So what we're looking at here are, are people who are kiliarchs, that is, rulers of a 1,000. And so... To, to use the word duke is simply to put it within the historical context of the translation rather than looking at a, a broader understanding of the term here. And so what we're looking at are clan chiefs or possibly tribal chiefs if we consider each of these to have through time uh, developed into a tribe as we speak of Israel. Whatever is the long-term meaning of all of this, we are told in this passage that the oldest son, the firstborn of Esau, was Eliphaz, and it is through him that the main line goes. Now, I'm not going to struggle through the verses of the next passage here from, from 10 down to, that is from 20 down to 30. Uh, it just, uh, you can read through it at your own leisure. Uh, 
if you feel like it. Uh, what we have here are, is a long list of names of individuals who were, well, first of all, clan chiefs of among, uh, amongst the Horite people who inhabited Edom before Esau came. And we might think, who cares? <laughs> uh, who cares who lived there before Esau came? We're having enough trouble with Esau and his descendants. Who cares about the people who lived before him? Well, it's interesting that uh, the name Mount Seir, which is the name of the country, comes from an early Horite who fathered the nation that lived there when, when Esau came. In this passage, if you were to read down through it, you'd find the name Timnah highlighted again. <laughs> this lady gets her name in here quite often. Pretty good for a concubine who only bore one son that we know about. But in verse 22, it's the same lady as you find back up in verse 12. What this is telling us, and one of the reasons why it's important to talk about the Horites here, is that you have intermarriage between the Edomites and the Horites. They become intermarried as a people. They're not only intermarried at this time with Timnah marrying or being concubine of, of Eliphaz, but further on down in this same passage, in verses 24 and 25, uh, we're told that, uh, well, it says, these are the sons of Zibion, Anna, uh, Ea, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing donkeys, the donkeys of his father Zibion. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, Oholebama, whoa, the daughter of Anna. So what we're told by that is that the intermarriage occurred even before the marriage of Timnah or the concubinage of Timnah with Eliphaz, but that Oholibamah, the one who married Esau later in time and gave him the three sons who became chiefs, was also a Horite. She is called in one passage a Hivite. What does that tell us? Probably tells us that the Hivites and the Horites were either intermixed as separate peoples or those are two separate terms referring to the same people. You got all that? Good. Yeah, right. Yeah, it would be nice if he put a, a nice family lineage up there, right? So we could trace all these people. It's also interesting, I found in that passage, that it talks about this hot springs. Well, I mean, how many hot springs have been discovered in history and they're not recorded in scripture? Well, just about all of them, right? But for some reason, uh, this hot springs in the region southeast of the Dead Sea was accidentally discovered by uh, Esau's father-in-law. And uh, must have been some hot springs. Must have been pretty famous or something. Maybe in those days it was the place you went to uh, for a holiday or something. I, I don't know. Uh, for it to be noted there. There's no explanation for why it is noted here. I mean, no one knows why it is specifically noted here. But I think finally, it, it is significant to know that the Horites were ultimately displaced by the Edomites. Yes, there was intermarriage, but over time, the Edomites pushed out, destroyed the remaining Horites that lived in the land. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter two, verse 12. 
The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession which the Lord gave to them. Then down to verse 22, just as he did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them, they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. If you'll notice the wording in this passage, in verse 22, there's a capital He here. This is God. Just as God did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir when He destroyed the Horites. So what we have here is the fact that even though Esau was the rebel, and even though Edom would be the enemy of Israel, God is still superintending the course of history. And God is responsible, even though it was the Edomite sword, the Edomite spear, the Edomite bow, which killed the Horites and drove them out. It was ultimately God who did it. God is the author behind all of the phases of history, either by his direct providential intervention or by his allowing things to take place as a result of the, you know, whatsoever you, sh you sow, you, you shall reap uh, principle of Scripture. So the Horites were eventually destroyed by the Edomites, apparently with the blessing and in the empowerment of God himself. Again, I'll spare, spare you the torture of reading the next uh, passage from 31 to, to 39, or maybe I'll spare me the torture of uh, trying to read all those, uh, all those names. Oh, to me, the thing would be fascinating is, is to have the people who were called by those names come here and read the list. <laughs> that would really blow your mind away. All we have are the uh, you know, best we can possibly think of English transliterations, and we have no idea how the names were really uh, pronounced at the time. What we have here is a list of some of the kings of Edom, as you read down through there. We're told in verse 31 of that passage that these kings ruled before Israel had a king. Evidently, all of the clan chiefs, the dukes, or whatever you want to refer to them as that we read about previously, were unified under a single king, ultimately. Now, Isaac died somewhere in the neighborhood of 1800 B.C., we, we can't know for sure exactly when, but that's an approximate figure uh, for the date of Isaac, 1800 B.C. Now, the first king of Israel did not come to power until after 1100 B.C. So we're looking at a 700-year span of time that is being alluded to here. At what point in that time did uh, the rule of Edom cease to be clan or tribal and become monarchical? When did a king come to power? Well, we're not told. As in the case of Israel, it could have been after hundreds of years. Remember, Israel dwelt in the land for a long time before they had their first king. Whatever is the case, uh, there's no way those kings listed there are going to cover the period of time we're talking about here, 700 years of time. So well, who are they? How do they fit into this, uh, this scene? Well, first of all, I think we have to believe that either they were selected kings, in other words, uh, the record only chose this one and that one and the other one, or what is more likely, 
uh, and seems to be apparent from the passage, they were founders of new dynasties of rulers in Edom. This seems to be supported by the fact, if you read down through there, none of them has a father-son relationship. In other words, the following king is not the son of the previous king. And if you remember through the, through the study of Samuel and kings, this was very commonly the case. So-and-so begat his son, the son became king in his stead, and then his son became king in his stead. And this is the way it went for both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, except in time of uh, coup. And so what we may be talking about here, illustrated by the fact that they each came from a different city, not only a different father, but a different city, is that either by coup or by election, these people founded a new dynasty. And so that may be what we're looking at here. And so there's no attempt to bracket the whole time period. It's possible that the kings in Edom were raised up only for the purpose of a period of time of stress. And therefore, they were much like the judges later in Israel. And I'll just read this passage in Isaiah quickly. seems to lend at least some possibility to that idea in the 34th chapter of Isaiah. Verse 5, we, see, we read, For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom, upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. Then down in verse 12, Its nobles, there is no one there, whom they may proclaim king, and all its princes shall be nothing. That may refer to the fact that what we have is that actually is a feudal situation, and that although there may have been a king in Edom, his power was, was titular, figurehead, because of the local chieftains hold, holding together ultimately the power in their hands. And you think back through European history, and that's often the way it was, especially if you go back to the uh, 11th, 12th, 13th century along in that uh, particular time period. Whatever the case, whatever the case, none of these kings is ever mentioned again in Scripture. None of them. They are mentioned here, I think, only for the purpose of Israel understanding the chronology of their neighbors and how it fits in with their own history as they were poised to conquer the land in the days of Joshua. Moses had just completed writing the Pentateuch uh, as God had inspired him as they came through the wilderness wanderings and now they're ready to enter the land and they needed to have that record to go along with their own record to correlate the nation of Israel with their neighbors. I would like to read the last three verses in that chapter. Verse 40, Genesis 36, verse 40. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their localities. By their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, uh, Chief Oholibamah, whoops, Chief Elah, Chief Pinan, Chief Kenaz, Chief Teman, Chief Bibzar, Chief Magdal, Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, and the, the father of Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. And you'll notice a lot of those names are not names mentioned before in the list. And one of them was the name of Esau's wife. Now, I don't think that was Esau's wife that they're referring to here. Because Oholibamah, as I mentioned to you before, meant exalted tent. 
And so it's a name could have been applied to a man or a woman. And so what we have here, I think, because the last phrase of this said, a passage says, according to the habitations in the land of their possession, is what we have here is a list not so much of the original chiefs, but of the ultimate chieftainates, tribal territories that were constructed in the land and then were perpetuated. And they were probably named not for the original chief, but for possibly the original chief or a later chief who came along and was a great hero, either politically or militarily. And so the tribal name was installed for that part of the land. So what about chapter 36? We read this uh, particular passage, and, and what can we garner from it? What can we derive from it? Well, the Edomites came into their land of possession long before the Israelites did. Let me read you some words by Matthew Henry about this, the commentator Matthew Henry. He says, while the Israelites dwelt in the house of bondage, that's, of course, when they were down in Egypt, and their Canaan was only the land of promise. The Edomites dwelt in their own habitations, and Seir was in their possession. Note, the children of this world have their all in hand and nothing in hope, while the children of God have their all in hope and next to nothing in hand. But all things considered, it's better to have Canaan in promise than Mount Seir in hand. Kind of a profound concept when you think about it. Esau was living in his land. Esau had his reward. Jacob remained a sojourner in his land until the day of his death. Well, of course, he ultimately went down to Egypt, and he was a sojourner there too. There were no, quote, dukes or kings in Israel during that time period. There would not be for hundreds of years any such political authorities. Worldliness gives to its seekers often quick gratification. But that gratification is not lasting. Worldly greatness often comes very quickly. Spiritual greatness tends to come only after long years of toil and trouble and sweat. There are those in the world today who want spiritual greatness overnight, who want to leapfrog into some high-standing place of spiritual uh, understanding and commitment. And that's why there are various churches in America today who, who offer these instantaneous jumps. You know, you come and this thing happens to you and suddenly you're super spiritual, all, you know, literally all overnight, it seems like. But if you read through Scripture, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us that it's a day-by-day, day, slow, toiling, long walk from the point at which we come to know Christ until the point where we, where we have achieved what God wants us to achieve in this life, and then he takes us home. Read Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim doesn't just leap from the foot of the cross to, to, to the entrance to the celestial city. He goes through some pretty tough stuff along the way. And that's what life is really like. Many people through history have been uh, catapulted from uh, 
from relative obscurity to, to almost instantaneous fame. There are many examples. Napoleon. Who was Napoleon? I mean, he came from Corsica. Who's a Corsican? Well, you know, it's sort of like they said of Jesus. Uh, does any good come out of Nazareth? Most of the French people would have said, does any good come out of Corsica? There's a bunch of hicks over there on that island. And yet, here comes Napoleon, and he rises up through the ranks, and he literally, almost overnight, appears at the head of state. What about Abraham Lincoln? Who was Abraham Lincoln? A person hardly anybody knew until he had these famous debates with, with a future presidential candidate, in fact, his, one would be his rival, Stephen O. Douglas. And, and they, uh, is it Stephen O? I keep getting Stephen O and Stephen A, is it? I've forgotten. Maybe Dr. Grant cor correct me on this. But uh, we have had a recent Stephen Douglas. Anyway, Steve Douglas. We'll just call him Steve Douglas. <laughs> His wife probably called him Stevie Deer or something anyway. Uh, you know, these debates catapulted him to the front page of, of newspapers, and eventually, two years later, he ended up as a presidential candidate. But he came from, from out of nowhere. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson, the same thing, a college president, history teacher. Wow, Dr. Grant, <laughs> you have a lot of uh, hope here. <laughs> I, you know, just kind of leapfrogged to the presidency at a time when this nation faced great crisis. And, and Nikolai Lenin, uh, who was he? And suddenly he ran the greatest, largest country in the world in terms of territory. And Adolf Hitler, Mikhail Gorbachev, if you will. I mean, people who just came from, from uh, internationally at least, from nowhere to front page, you know, Time Magazine cover, I guess, uh, if that's the measure of uh, worldly greatness. But what about spiritual greatness? How does spiritual greatness come? Do we leapfrog from obscurity to the, to the front page of God's Kingdom Herald or whatever, you know? I don't think so. Think of St. Francis, the life he had to go through. Today, we often quote his prayer, and, and we think high thoughts about St. Francis, but did he get there easily? No, it was a long, slow road. Thomas Akempis, uh, a man in relative obscurity, and yet many people today think of his, of his writings, The Imitation of Christ, as, as almost like your chapter 51 and 52 of Psalms or something. John Wesley, long, arduous route to spiritual greatness. C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham. I mean, the list goes on. The world gives instant gratification. For God, our hope is eternal. Alan Ross, another commentator, wrote these words, A promised spiritual blessing demands patience and faith. Waiting while others appear to prosper is a test of one's faithfulness and perseverance. Can we wait? Can we let God do the work before we get out there and, and try to be on the battlefield? This is, this is a situation we deal with every once in a while in the college setting. So sometimes kids come into college and they're all on fire and they want to, after the first year, they're ready to go out and do it. And they're not, they just don't have the patience to stay there and let God continue the honing, getting them ready. Most of us would rather be operated on with a by a surgeon who has a sharp knife and not some butter knife, you know. And many are ready to go out there while they're still butter knives and they haven't been honed, prepared for the ministry. 
Let me read uh, from Psalm 37. Kind of speaks directly, I think, to this, uh, this issue here. This is not on your outline. Psalm 37, beginning at verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Israel could have been jealous of Edom. God, we've, we've got the covenant. We've got the promise. But Edom dwells securely in the land. And they've got their political thing together. And, and they're prospering and, and we're still sojourners in the land. We got a little piece here and a little piece there, but we don't own the land. The Canaanite is still here. What are you doing, Lord? Don't you know that we're all supposed to be healthy and wealthy as Christians? We're supposed to be kings and queens on this earth. Jesus also, in the 12th chapter of Luke, said something that I think fits with this same concept here. Jesus speaking in chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Luke 12, 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In other words, he who dies with the most toys does not win spite of the bumper sticker. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. And he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Notice the attitude of his heart. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. It's very e easy for us as believers who are children of the king to wonder how come we can't live like princes in this world? How, how come we don't have great possessions like many of the go most godless people in history have had? 
Some of the great kings and queens of history have been atrocious people in terms of, of morally and spiritually and just about every other category you can think about. And you, you read about the lives of, of Andrew Carnegie and, and John D. Rockefeller and, and some of these others who rose to the very pinnacle of power and wealth in this country and we say, God, how come we can't do that? You know? I mean, just think what I could do. If I had all that money, I'd build a gym tomorrow at the college. You know? I, I'd, I'd give up uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, scholarship. There we go. I give a scholarship to every student. You know, I mean, you just, why, why can't we do that, Lord? Why do we have to pray and struggle and work and plead? Well, God has his reasons and God has his plans. God knows that if we don't struggle and we don't work, it's not real. Our faith is not based on, on, on the easy plastic way of living today. It's based on the deep trust in God because he has been there through the hard things in life. He's been there through our illness. He's been there through our financial difficulties. He's been there through death in the family. He's been there. And by that we're made strong. Israel had yet to go into bondage and spend 400 years in Egypt to be prepared for what they were to do next. And even then, what happened to them? The vast majority of them were wiped out in the wilderness because even after that, they weren't very well prepared. God had to take that nation through hard times to make it into the people of his own calling, of his own name. For Edom, it was no problem. Instant success, instant gratification, kingdom in the land, because they did not trust in God. And their plan was not to serve him and to do his will. So I think from the 36th tra chapter of Genesis, we can derive this truth that we should not be envious of the world around us and their success. And, and those who, who are already fixed for life, as it were. You know, some of you may be looking down the line to retirement and you wonder, whoa, I've got very little. Whereas others have got vast amounts all stored up so they can go into retirement and spend the rest of their lives traveling around the world on cruise ships, you know. And it's easy to be envious of such a situation if we don't realize that our joy is not in those things. Our hope is in God. Our joy is in Him. And, and the, the wonderful things that we have are yet to come, but not in this life. Even if we do enjoy some of the good things in this life, that's just a teeny, teeny little edge of odor, if you will, of, of the greatness of what God has for us all, the, the wealth that we will experience eternally. I, I wouldn't trade a day of eternity for a lifetime of what some people live here, even in spite of their wealth and what all they may have. We ought not to be envious of Esau or the Edomites, but to put ourselves in the place of Israel and the difficult conditions that they faced but they were forged into a people of God. The 37th chapter of Genesis begins to talk about that forging. And that forging begins with a very young man. His name is Joseph. Most of us are quite familiar with many of the facts of the life of Joseph. But as we look through his life in detail, I think a lot, of, a lot more will uh, emerge that will be really helpful to us. Again, the time frame 
for this chapter fits back within the 35th chapter of Genesis, I believe. Let me just read that verse, Genesis 35, 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. The events of the 37th chapter seem to fit time-wise into that verse. Isaac is not yet dead, but Jacob has finally settled down. He has finally come to the place he was supposed to come to, Hebron, and, and to the inheritance of Abraham and Isaac. He's taken over the responsibility of all of his father's possessions, along with his vast herds and all of his own wealth, added to that of Isaac, I mean, he was a man of great wealth. Probably no one in the whole land of Canaan had as much wealth as Isaac, uh, that is, as, as Jacob had. He is now becoming truly the patriarch in Canaan that he was intended to be. Like his father and his grandfather, however, he remained a sojourner, a sojourner in the land. Did you ever get tired of being a sojourner? You ever say, Lord, please come or take me home or something? Uh, I'm tired of being a nomad in this land. I want to go to my true home. Well, certainly many of us feel that way from time to time, particularly when the burdens are heavy and the storms of life seem to be raging. You have to kind of consider the situation for Jacob. Here he was, finally at Hebron. He had a lot of wealth. Lots of people for whom he was responsible, but it really wasn't his land yet, but it was the promised land. The author of the book of Hebrews speaks to this, as we have noted. Let's look at it again, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews eleven eight, By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Verse 13, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they have been thinking of that country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their, their God, and he has prepared for them a city. And of course, we read about that city in the latter part of the book of Revelation, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride from God above. We are as Jacob and Leah and Rachel. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. This is not our home. We are just a passing through as we sing. And we really need to remember that. 
Not that we don't prepare for the future. It's important for us to do that. Scripture teaches us that you know, it's foolish not to plan for the future and, and to look to the ant and, and prepare for uh, times ahead. But that can't be where our heart is. That can't be where our hope is. Our heart and our hope have to be with, the king, with God in His heavenly kingdom and for that, that future city. It's really difficult for us today because everything that comes at us from the newspaper, the magazines, the television, the radio, over the telephone uh, is, boy, you need more insurance and, and boy, you need more investment here and investment there and you need to buy this, you need to buy that. I mean, what is life if you don't have a 4x4, four four, you know? What is life if you're not drinking Coors or, or whatever it is? We have to, to resist that and realize that... Uh, our, our, we're, our eyes are on a distant goal, and we're headed for that goal as Pilgrim was in Pilgrim's Progress. And not be waylaid, not get stuck in Vanity Fair, uh, fooling around there when we should be on the route, the route to, to the kingdom. Have to be careful of the voices we listen to, because there are a lot of voices out there. And remember, God's Spirit doesn't usually yell at us. I think when, when the still small voice spoke to Elijah there on, on uh, Mount Horeb, that that was a type, uh, a kind of an example to us. I mean, God can speak loudly. He can do the two-by-four trick as he did to Saul on the road to Damascus, but he doesn't usually. He speaks in that still small voice. And if we're not listening, we don't hear. And it's, over, it's overwhelmed by the loud screaming voices of this world and of our flesh. So as we come here to this particular chapter, we're going to be looking at the initial events in the life of the fourth and the last of the great patriarchs of the book of Genesis. With exceptions of chapters 38 and 49 of Genesis, most of the rest of, of the book focuses on this man, upon the life of Joseph. And we will discover that in many ways, Joseph was the most godly of the four patriarchs. And yet, uh, and in addition, God would use him as an agent for the salvation of two nations, Israel and Egypt, really, at that particular time. And yet, through it all, we discover Messiah did not come through Joseph. Messiah came through a very unlikely person who we'll read about in the 38th chapters. We have another little parenthesis here in the story about a man who was a rascal, and yet in the midst of his rascality, I don't know if there's such a word, but he, he exhibited certain Christ-like characteristics, and we'll discover them as we proceed through the remaining chapters of Genesis.